the ladies want to know if they're still going to want me after this message. Well, I don't know, but we will soon find out. So, um, all right, we're going to be in the, uh, the book of Esther. You know, um, I have been preaching for some time now through um, Ezra and Nehemiah. We've been in it for several months. I like preaching through the Old Testament here lately, and I don't know why, just God has led me to it, and I've enjoyed, uh, and I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've learned something from it. But um, I'd like to spend uh, through Esther, and then after we get through Esther, we'll be going into Advent, into December, and um, then we'll probably spend some time in the New Testament again. So we'll see where God leads on that. But in Ezra and Nehemiah, you know that we have been talking about the captives that have been returned to Jerusalem. Remember, God sent them into captivity into Babylon because of their disobedience unto Him. They did not keep the covenant. They began to serve other gods. They began to intermarry with uh, people that worshipped other gods than Him. And as a result of that, He led them into captivity for 70 years. Ezra and Nehemiah are the books that talk about the return to where God calls them back. And so during Ezra, he leads a group back, or actually um, Zerubbabel, one of the, uh, the princes of um, Jerusalem, if you will, he leads a group back and they rebuild the temple in Ezra. Ezra leads a group back and then a second um, remnant of, of Israelites back. And then he leads them into establishing the law and following God according to the law. And then finally at the end, Nehemiah leads another group back and he comes back and he rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. But do you remember that during this time, the enemy has been over and over again trying to stop the work? Do you remember that? Well, at the same time, the story of Esther actually fits right in the middle of Ezra and Nehemiah. Actually, chronologically, it should fit somewhere in between Ezra chapter 6 and chapter 7, I believe. You could fit the story of Esther right there. And so what we're looking at here is we're looking in Esther at a group of Israelites that did not return to Jerusalem during this time. Remember, Ezra and Nehemiah are all about the groups that did return and the struggles they faced as the enemy tried to stop them from building the kingdom of God. Well, at the same time, Satan has also got a plan working in Persia. Because remember, and I'm trying to give you, not give you too much history here, but the Babylonians took them into captivity. Y'all remember that? The Persians came and overtook the Babylonians. So then they're under Persian captivity, all right? And during this time when they're under the Persian captivity is when the kings of Persia let them start coming back and rebuilding their city and the kingdom of God is getting built, but the enemies of God hate it. They hate it. And so now what's happening in Esther is that there is a plan going on with the enemy since he can't stop the work in Ezra, he can't stop the work in Nehemiah. He is trying his best to develop a plan where he just annihilates God's people altogether. And that's what Esther is about. And so we're going to look this morning, the title of our message, if you have a bulletin, is The Providence of God. Now let me help you understand what I mean by that for just a minute. 
Providence, it actually comes from a Latin word, two words. Um, uh, but it, it comes from a word that in the center of it, we would pronounce it, it's where we get our word video. Video. And so it's a Latin word that means to be able to see, to be able to have foresight, to be able to have foreknowledge. But it's so much more than just foreknowledge. It is the fact that God has foreknowledge, that God doesn't just focus on today. God doesn't just focus on tomorrow. God sees from the beginning of a thing all the way to its end. And God has that foresight and knows how to order things in a cursed world so that everything always works together for the good of those who love Him and for those who are called according to His purpose. And so providence, the first part of that word, uh, prov, and so ultimately we're talking about provision here. And what we're talking about when we talk about providence is God's ability to be able to foresee everything that's going to be, take place and use that and sovereignly direct everything in life so that it always works together for the good of those who love Him, and He always directs every decision and everything that happens according to His purpose. See, when I preach to you so many times, you've heard me use the phrase that God is sovereign. And what I mean by that is that, like Jesus said, think about what Jesus said, not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from what? Apart from His will apart from Him knowing it. In other words, nothing in this world has ever happened apart from His foreknowledge of it and Him directing and guiding it so that it always works together for the good of those who love Him and for those that are called according to His purpose. He has a purpose in everything He's doing. Esther, it has been said, is a book that never mentions God. And can I tell you, that's right. Not a single time as we go through this book will you ever hear the name of God mentioned. Matter of fact, the only thing that you will ever hear about God is in one passage to where they actually begin to fast for Esther as she has to go before the king. She asked the people to fast for. So in that, that lets us know that the people were looking to God or they wouldn't have been fasting, right? And so even though Esther never mentions God, I want you to understand that God is in every detail of this book. What this book is about is the providence of God. In this entire story, especially when you know Ezra and Nehemiah and you know what the enemy is doing, you see, have you ever asked the question, well, why didn't God just send all of the Israelites back to Jerusalem to rebuild the kingdom of God? I mean, why did He just send this group at first? And why did He? Because Ezra told us that the only ones that went back were the ones that God stirred up their heart to do it. Ezra chapter 1 verse 5, if you want to see that. Again... God is in control of all things. So the group that goes back, why'd they go back? God stirred them up and they went back. God gave them a heart to go back and rebuild the temple. The second group that comes back with Ezra, same way. God stirs up their hearts. Why didn't God just stir up all the hearts? Were the group that stayed in Persia during this time wrong? 
No. You know why? God didn't stir their heart to go. God didn't lead them in the same way. As a matter of fact, in um, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 4 through 7, they're doing exactly what God told them to do before they went into captivity. Listen to what God told them through the prophet Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and, and, and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply where? They're doing exactly what God told them to do. Multiply there and do not decrease. And look at verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Now that seems like a strange thing to do, don't it? But remember, God is always working all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So during this time, He commands them, build lives here while you're here. Seek the welfare of the city. In other words, you're not enemies while you're there. Seek their welfare. Pray for their peace. Pray for the peace that I have sent you into and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And so what we have here is God sovereignly still blessing the people that He sent there as they build lives. He is stirring up some to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the kingdom to keep His promise. And during this time, God is setting all the pieces up. You remember when we studied Isaiah? God raised King Cyrus of the Persian Empire up. You remember? He said, Cyrus is my servant. I am raising him up for my purpose. And Cyrus is the one that when he became king over Persia, he sent the first group of exiles back into Jerusalem to lead it. God was sovereignly in control of that and in His providence or Him being able to foresee everything people would do, everything leaders would do, everything His, um, his enemy Satan would do. God being able to see it all, He puts every piece in place in order that it would always work for the good of His people and according to His purpose. And you see that all over the book of Esther. And so, what we talk about here first is another king, not Cyrus. But Cyrus was the first king of Persia. He sent a group back in Ezra. Darius was the second king in Persia. He was actually married to Cyrus's daughter. He sent a group through Ezra back into Jerusalem to be taught and to learn the ways of God. Ahasuerus here is the next king, the son of Darius, and now he has a part to play in here. But God has to sovereignly work on him as well and so what is he going to do? Well, in the book of Esther, he's going to use Ahasuerus to demote the current queen. And then he's going to open up a spot so that a Jewish queen that he don't even know is a Jew because she hides it from him, she becomes a queen because God in His foreknowledge knows that the enemy in this book is going to form a plan to... Since Remember, think about this, y'all that's been with me through Ezra and Nehemiah. The enemy has tried everything. You remember that? 
The enemy has tried everything to stop the work on the kingdom of God. But did he succeed? The temple was built. The law was, was taught. The walls of Jerusalem were built. He can't stop them. So what's he going to do? He's going to go to the source and he's going to try to get the king of Persia to just wipe out all the Jews. I can't stop them in Jerusalem, so let me just attack them at the very root of this thing and see if I can wipe them out. And that's what the story of Ezra is about. But with God having this foreknowledge and God knowing all the things that's going to happen to His people, He sets all the pieces in place and He sovereignly uses every person's free will decision He sovereignly uses His own people and directing them and stirring them their hearts and leading them. And this whole time, Him knowing it all, He's putting everything in place so that everything, no matter how good or how bad, it always works together for good, not for everybody, but for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. And that's what you're going to see all through Esther. The first king is Ahasuerus. You would know him as Xerxes I. You've, uh, any of y'all ever seen the movie? Um, and listen, I know we're in church, but don't lie to me, alright? Any of y'all ever seen the movie 300? 300. You remember the old famous, uh, the Spartan that kicks the guy off into the pit and says, We are Sparta! Come on, men! This is a man's movie. Y'all got to know what I'm talking about. This movie is actually based on a historical event. Now Hollywood kind of dressed it up, we know that. But the story is a true story. There were 300 Spartans. This King Xerxes had a plan that he wanted to overtake the Greece empire. Persia was an empire, but now he's not satisfied with that. He wants Greece. And so he goes over to Greece and he actually does so many different things. In order to get there, he has to cross this body of water that the, the smallest distance in this body of water, this strait, if you will, is two miles. So he has to have find some way to get his army across a, a great body of water that the shortest distance he can find from one side to the other is two miles. How's he going to do this? So what he does is he actually gets engineers to construct a bridge. They build it out of pontoons. He takes his entire army, um, the, the Greek historian, not the Persian historian, the Greek historian. So this is not the guy that's pro-Xerxes, right? But he writes, and you can read about him today, that this king brought an army of somewhere around a million men now some say it was a little less than that, but that's what the Greek historian said, that he brought a million men across, that he was trying to bring them across these pontoons. Well, here's what happened. A storm came up and it destroyed the pontoons before he could use it. So this guy has such an issue with anger and he has so much pride that he actually decides he's going to punish the water. He gives the water, he commands the water to be whipped with lashes. He commands the water to be stabbed with, with rods of, um, of fire. Of fire. He, he commands it to be uh, shackled. He gets uh, some shackles and throws them in the water. I mean, this guy has anger issues, okay? 
I mean, he's doing everything he can to punish the water. And then he takes the engineering crew that built the pontoons and he beheads every one of them. He has anger issues. Then he hires another engineering crew. They actually accomplish the task. He crosses this with his million-man army. And if you've watched 300, you know that there were 300 Spartans. And also, the movie don't tell you, there were some other Greeks. They believe somewhere around 10 to 12,000 Greek soldiers is what they believe faced an army of one million people. And you remember what happened? Xerxes ended up having to go back with his tail between his legs. And he, didn't, he wasn't able to accomplish this. But the point that I'm trying to make with all this is what I'm reading to you about today is a real event that happened at a real time in history with real people. And this is not just some made-up story. This happened. And his name was Xerxes. And so the first thing I want you to notice in Esther chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, is that God is going to use this prideful king. Now this king is not a godly person. His queen is not a godly person. They're Persians. They serve a, a false god. But God is going to use even these people in order to work things together for the good of His people and according to His purpose. And look with me if you would. The point that Esther makes first, or whoever wrote this book, they think Mordecai actually wrote this book. They don't know for certain. But anyway, he uses Esther, or he uses this book, and in chapter 1, in verse 1, he says, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, the Ahasuerus that reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In other words, this was a very vast kingdom. This is a... This is a great empire. And notice what happens. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, now this is important because the first two years, normally he would have gave this feast as his commencement. It would have been a celebration of him coming to be king. But he has to wait to his third year. Why? Because the first two years he has to spend uh, uh, dealing with uprisings and, and um, rebellions in Egypt and Babylon even. And so in the third year of his reign, and again history will tell you that, that's how I know that. He gave a feast for all of his officials, all of his servants, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles, the governors, the providences were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his pomp, of his greatness, for many days, 180-day party we've got here. Now another thing that history teaches us is this feast. Do you know why he has all of his leaders and all the army? Because he's not made this journey into Greece yet. But he needs the support of his entire empire to go in and try to take over Greece. So what's he going to do? He's going to bribe them. He's going to show them how great he is. He's going to show the, the display of his pomp and his beauty and his glory. This is a very prideful king. And then in verse 5, And when these days were completed, the king also gave for all the people present in Susa and the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And so we've got a feast that's given for all the leaders and the army. We've got a feast that's being given for all the people, whether they're great or small. I mean, this is a party. 
And the king is going to show his goals here in this thing. He wants to display his greatness and riches, and he wants the favor and the support of all of his people, his military, all of his leaders, to go into Greece and to accomplish this next mission. So, how is he going to dress this place up? Well, look what he does in verse 6. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods. So you've got these, you've got these hangings that have these uh, curtains flowing and you have these violet purple things that are going from the, the, the hangings to the... Uh, what kind of rods did it say there? To the um, silver, silver rods and to marble pillars. And also... We didn't have couches here made of leather. See, you come into somebody's house today and you see they got a leather couch, you think, man, they, they do pretty good in life, right? They got leather couches here. What do they got couches of? Gold. Couches of gold, couches of silver. And then they're sitting on a mosaic pavement. And this mosaic pavement is made out of granite or porphyry. And it's made out of pieces of granite, pieces of marble, pieces of mother of pearl, and all kinds of precious stones that, I mean, can you picture this place? Alright, listen. This is a place that um, uh, Southern Living Magazine, they ain't never seen nothing like this. Better homes and gardens? Oh, they're weeping over this place right here. Alright? And so this, this is a beautiful place. And then not only that, but look at the, also the pride of this man. Verse 7. Drinks were served in what kind of vessels? Golden vessels. Vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine. You know what that means, don't you? We ain't talking about this old backwoods stuff, this old corn mash. Alright? We ain't talking about that apple pie moonshine. No, we're talking about the royal wine. And the royal wine was lavished. Look what it said. Was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And the drinking was according to this edict. Now remember, the writer of this wants you to picture this in your mind, right? The, it was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. In other words, this is an all-you-can-drink 180-day party in the finest place that you could ever go. I mean, this king is doing it up. Everything he's got is going into this. And then in verse 8, or verse, uh, sorry, verse 9, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. And so there again, we have the queen. Now she's giving a feast to all the ladies in the place. And so this is just a party of all parties going down. And so we see that this king, he wants to show off his riches, his golden vessels, his golden couches, silver couches, mosaic pavement. And now we're going to see his pride go even further because in verse in verse 10, look what happens. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. Let's put that in layman's terms. When this king was drunk, he commanded, as Daniel said, his seven servants here. He commanded his seven servants who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus. And the reason why this is important to understand is because the king... In Persia, we learned this in Ezra. You probably won't remember it. 
But the king had seven counselors that he always went to when it came to matters concerning war or matters concerning the law. And he, in his party, is sitting up here with his seven princes, if you will, his seven counselors, and this is the greatest of the greatest in his empire. He wants to show them how great he is. He wants to show them how powerful he is. He wants to show them that they can follow him into battle and that there is nothing and no one like him and no one can beat him. And now the last thing he wants to do, he wants to show off his wife. And here's the problem. Most scholars, or let me say this, some scholars, some commentators believe that what he actually wanted here because he was drunk and his princes were all drunk. Remember, there's no compulsion. They actually believe that what he wanted was for his queen to come before them with nothing on except her crown. Read with me again in verse uh, 11. To bring Queen Vashti before the king with what? with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was very lovely to look at. Now, it could have just been, there are other scholars and commentators that believe that maybe it just meant that he wanted her to undo her face, because during this culture, women did not show their face in public at all. It was very immodest. It was very wrong for a woman to show her face. She had to stay fully covered and the only one that got the privilege of seeing her beauty was her husband herself. That's it. No matter which way this is, the point is this. The king wanted his queen to come before all of his people and do something that would have been very improper for any woman to do, much less the queen. And as a result of that, she says, no, I'm not coming. Now that's a problem. You know why? Because this man has held this party for one purpose. He wants all of his people to know how powerful, how rich, how great he is, and that you can trust me, you can follow me, but all of a sudden he can command 127 provinces, but his own wife won't do what he tells her to do. I'm not going to dwell on that very long. But the problem is that he has now been shown in front of everybody, his entire kingdom, women, I mean everybody in the kingdom is here, all of his leaders, his military. And they see he ain't as powerful as he thinks he is. And so... He comes back, and as a result of that, his anger is just in a rage. And so he asked them, what am I going to do? And so he uses the pride of this king, first off, to go after Greece. And Greece is actually going to overthrow Persia because Daniel, before this king, all right, back when Cyrus was king, look what Daniel said. Look what Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 11 uh, in verse 2. Look at what he says right here. And now I will show you the truth. This is the angel talking to Daniel about what's going to happen in the future. Remember, God has all foreknowledge. Remember, God had the foreknowledge that Babylon was going to come in and take them into captivity because of their disobedience, right? God was going to correct them, discipline them. He's moving all things in order. Here's another thing He's going to do. He's not going to let Persia just keep doing what they're doing. 
So Daniel said, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia. Cyrus, Darius, and um, Ahasuerus. And the fourth shall be richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all the kingdom of who? Of Greece. And so what we've got here is we've got Daniel prophesying that Greece is going to be stirred up, and you can go back to Daniel and read the rest of it, but the point is, Greece is going to rise up. They're going to overthrow Persia. How is God going to accomplish this? He puts a prideful king in place that is not content with 127 provinces, but I want the world. And he uses the anger of this king and the pride of this king in order to accomplish his purpose. See, guys, let me tell you something. Why does this matter to you today? Because in all the events that you see going on in the world today, many of you may be tempted to believe that God has lost control. Can I tell you today that God is sovereign and that His providence will always use His sovereign power to put every piece in place, even when you don't understand it. You say, why in the world would God put a king like this over His people? God knows what He's doing. He knows exactly what He's doing. And so He uses a prideful king in order to see what He's going to do in the future. He's going to stir up Greece. Now remember, this king is not going to be able to accomplish Greece. All he's going to do is stir them up. But the fourth king that comes after Ahasuerus here, he loses the Persian Empire to the Greece. And so we have all this history that we look back and see God has been playing all these pieces to do exactly what He wanted to do and He did it by putting all the pieces in place exactly where they are supposed to be. Nothing was ever out of control. Next, he uses a queen's um, dignity, a deposed queen's dignity. Listen, Queen Vashti, listen, if she had been godly in this, this decision would have worked together for her good in some way. It still don't mean she wouldn't have been deposed because she would have. She still would have suffered. She still would have hurt. But in some way, God would have worked this for her good somewhere. But unfortunately, she's not part of that. And as a result of that, she's going to be deposed. Even though she was right to be modest and to have this kind of mindset. But God uses this. God uses the death of a little girl's parents. We're not going to go over there, just read the whole chapter, but go over to Esther chapter 2 and look at verse 5 through 7 with me. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemi, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. So here we have basically his cousin, right? But he's about 15 years older than her. And he's having to raise her because her parents died. Now we would have looked at this little situation and said, God, why weren't you there? Did you not know that this little girl needed her parents? I mean, God, what happened? See, we look at the current event and we don't see that we don't see God's providence. 
We don't see that God has foreknowledge to know exactly what needs to take place in every area for the good of His people and to work according to His purpose. And He even uses the death of a little girl's parents. Because if it weren't for the death of this little girl's parents, Mordecai would not have raised this little girl. They would have not been in the places they were in as you're going to read throughout this book. So he uses the death of a little girl's parents for his purpose. Look with me at Esther chapter 4 verse 14 and look what Mordecai said to Esther. 4 verse 14. He's talking to Esther as she already has become queen here. And he says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. In other words, God's going to accomplish His purpose, Esther. And you have human responsibility to do right by Him. But you and your father's house will perish, Esther, if you do nothing. And who knows, this is the point, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, Mordecai is able to look at the whole picture now and go, Esther, who knows if this wasn't exactly why God let your parents die. Who knows if this wasn't exactly why I raised you and I became in the place that I'm in in the kingdom of Persia. Who knows if this isn't the exact reason why God put you here for this very thing. And that's the whole point of the book of Esther. When you don't understand what God is doing in your life, that's okay. You're not supposed to understand. But you know what you're supposed to do? Trust. Trust. God, I don't understand it. It don't make sense. It hurts. God, I don't like our leader. I figured I'd get an amen from a nail on that. God, I don't like our leader. God, you've removed the queen. God, you've raised up a Jewish girl to put in the place of her. God, I don't understand what you're doing. But one thing I know, God, you're sovereign, you're in control, and you have providence. You can see. Provido. You can see into and know how to provide so that everything works together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. I'm not going to show you, for lack of time, the fourth point. God uses an overheard plot for His purpose, but that has to do with Mordecai and how he ended up in the favor of the king. That's chapter 2, verse 19 through 23. But I want to get to the application real quick. The application is this. Don't be like the king. Whenever I go through scriptures and I come up to the right interpretation, I say, okay, here's what God is trying to show me. Here's what God is trying to tell me. God is trying to show me in this book that He is always in control and knows exactly what He's doing. He has everybody exactly where He means for them to be, whether it be sinners or whether it be His people. He knows what He's doing. That's what God's trying to tell me. And then I ask the question, God, how does this apply to me? God, is there a sin I should avoid in this? God, is there a promise that I should claim in this? God, is there a prayer that I should pray in this? What should I do with this, God? Here's the application. Don't be like the king. Avoid treasuring riches and power. 
What good at the end of King Ahasuerus' reign were all that power and all that marble and all that gold and all that silver and all those leaders and all those providences and the most beautiful queen? In the end, what good did it do him? You ever heard those saying, you ain't never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse? That's the truth. And Jesus warned us and He told us, don't lay up treasures here in this world that moth destroy and thieves break in and steal and rust comes in and destroys it. Don't spend your life so focused on the here and the now and the things of this world and then you finally come to the end of your life and go, what did it accomplish me? Nothing. We need to look at this king here and understand that with all of his pride and all of his glory and all of his beauty and all of his pomp and all of his gold and all of his silver and all of his power, you know, that's the reason why God put this story in here. He also wants us to laugh at his power. He wants us to see this so powerful man and his own wife won't do what he says. You know, we think we're so great. We should learn, learn from this man and understand that avoiding treasure and power is some of the best thing that we can do. And in the end, we need to put our focus on, as Jesus said, laying up treasures in heaven, which moth will not destroy, rust will not destroy, thieves will never break in and steal. And we need to learn from this and actually apply this to our life. The next thing, I'll speed it up. Don't be afraid to lose everything to keep your dignity, especially for the glory of God. Now listen, I'm not saying Queen Vashti was a godly woman. Again, she wasn't. But she was not afraid to lose everything in order to keep her dignity. In order to make sure that when people looked at her, they didn't see her as just some worldly person. And what I want to teach you today, especially women, is listen to your husbands. No, no, I'm sorry. That's not what I want to teach you. <laughs> what I want to teach you today, especially women, but men too, but especially women. Listen, the Bible teaches us that when people look at you, you should dress yourself and you should live yourself in such a way that they see more of Christ and less of you. That's the truth. Now listen, I'm not saying there was anything wrong with the queen looking beautiful. I'm not saying that, that women are to walk around as ugly as they can be. Absolutely not. You are made in the image of man. Come on, y'all got, got to look the way, we, way we're designed here. And so absolutely there is a beauty of a woman. There is. But people are to be able to look at you and when they look at you they say, that's a Christian woman. That woman is more concerned with people seeing her modesty and her, her desire to live for God than she is about showing people how beautiful she is. Because let me tell you something, the Bible said that Vashti was very beautiful to look at, right? I mean, you think about it. If she's married to the most powerful man in the world, she's probably the most beautiful woman in the world, right? And yet... She will not, she will not sacrifice her dignity 
even at the command of the most powerful man in the world. And God uses this deposed queen and this woman's dignity in order to open up the spot so that Esther now becomes king. Our queen, I'm sorry. And so we have to understand here that God is calling us to be modest. And we learn from this example. Um, actually, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 through 10, look what he says right here. But godliness, I'm sorry, wrong one. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 through 10. I apologize, Nathan. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 through 10. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Again, he's not saying women can't wear jewelry. He's not saying that women can't be beautiful. No, they should be. Absolutely. Take pride in yourself and, and want to be beautiful. Um, uh, I love the fact that my wife wants to be, to be pretty and wants to be beautiful. Uh, and, and most of the time, hopefully, she's doing that for me. <laughs> but, but I, I, and I want that. But he says, make sure you do it with what is proper for women who profess godliness. Now think about this for just a minute. If you profess godliness, then there ought to be a look about you that says to the world, I want you to see more of Christ than you see of me. And this is, should be a heart in women today. I want us to be able to apply this, to learn from this example. Even though it wasn't for God, for the one true God, it is still examples that we can all learn from. And so, make sure that we do it as someone who professed godliness with good works. Next thing, men, remember that our headship is a loving servant headship. See, that's the reason why we've always had to have women's rights movements, women's liberation movements. If we did our job to treat women the way that God designed for us to be as heads over them, and it's not a domineering, you're going to do what I say, it is a loving servant headship the way that Jesus is toward us. It is a servant leadership that says... I will give my life for you. I will, I will love you. I will serve you. I will provide. I will give everything I am for you. And instead, because we're sinners, we've got that twisted, right? And all throughout these years, we've had women that have risen up and said, I, I, me too and all this and that, whatever all this stuff is, because, men, we've not done our job well. And so we need to learn to avoid this sin of all these men. Man, can't you imagine the, the flesh of all these men when that edict went out through the entire 127 provinces of Persia and it said, every woman must obey every word of their husband. And if they don't, the wrath of the king is coming. Man, can't you imagine being a man and getting that in the mail going, <laughs> going to be a fun, fun time from here on out. And we learn from that sin. And we learn from the fact that this was a prideful, angry king who listened to bad counsel and bad advice. And as a result of that, we have the world we have today. Instead of a world to where women happily submit to the headship of man. You know what? If if we were the kind of heads that Jesus was toward us, 
You think any woman would have a problem submitting to that? None whatsoever. None. And so men, we've got to do our job. Last thing, don't stop trusting God when things happen that you don't understand. Don't stop trusting God when things happen that you don't understand. When you don't know why God is allowing things in your life that He is, don't forget that not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from His will. God, I don't understand it. God, it don't make sense. God, it hurts. But I know that you are sovereign and I know you have providence. I know that you can see what I can't see. And I know, this is the reason why the Apostle Paul said what he said in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Remember, Paul didn't say, and I think that God works together all things for our good. What did he say? You know how Paul could say we know? Because Paul was a Bible scholar. Paul, Paul knew all about biblical history. And he looked back at all the prophecies and how God was always working every piece, no matter whether it was world empires, no matter whether it was the enemy trying his tricks, no matter what was happening in a cursed world. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. You know why? Because we're sinners living in a cursed world. It is unavoidable. In this world you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. But you remember what Jesus said, but be of good cheer. I have overcome this world. And Paul looks back at all of biblical history and he says, we know something. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. It may not feel good at the time. You think when Esther was a little girl and she lost her mom and her dad and her cousin has to start raising her, you think Esther looked at that and said, yeah, this is great. Yeah, I understand this. This makes so much sense. Not at all. But one day, one day I promise you, Esther was able to finally look way back and go, God, it didn't make sense. I didn't understand it. But you knew what you were doing. And I trust you. So don't stop trusting God when things happen that you don't understand. Don't forget God when things are good. Sometimes things are good in this life, and that too is God's providence. Amen? Amen. Don't stop and forget God when things are good. He is always working all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So many different applications from the book of Esther. As I said this morning, your job is to always examine yourself. You are a disciple of Jesus if you've been born again, if you've been saved. And your job is to always come in and hear the Word of God and say, Okay, God, how does that now apply to my life? What do I do with this? That now is between you and the Holy Spirit. Whatever it is that the Lord spoke to you from this lesson, I pray that you were a little more like Jesus, a little stronger in your faith, whatever it may be. I pray that when you walk out of here, that you're a little closer to God than you were when you came in.